Take a network break. Help yourself to a virtual donut and your favorite beverage as we take a caffeinated spin through this week's networking and tech news. We've got stories on Palo Alto Networks, Arista, some financial results, an ISP accused of behaving badly, and more. We're sponsored today by Dell Technologies, and you can learn how open source Sonic can play multiple roles in your enterprise network infrastructure with Dell Technologies and its commercial versions of open source Sonic, both within the data center and further. Get more details at DellTechnologies.com networking. At Stay Tuned After the News, we have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia. We're going to dive a little deeper into Nokia's fabric services system for automating a data center fabric, including an emulation feature that lets you build a digital twin of the fabric to help you manage change. All right, before we dive into the news, we have an FU that is a follow-up from a listener. They've got a few points. Let's walk through them first. They're uh, referencing a story we did, I think, last week on Starlink partnering with Google Cloud. Uh, Starlink's having some base stations run in uh, Google Cloud's uh, data centers. Yeah, so the, the point that uh, C, is making, C is making here is that if you put base stations in a country, they would nominally be subject to the government jurisdiction of that country. And if you were to put a Starlink base station, then your data would be flowing potentially through that Chinese base station. Uh, as that writing, I did recently read an article about Starlink and some of the others, and they have no permission to put base stations in China, and I believe no plans to do so. Now, that doesn't stop people from having satellite dishes that point to the Starlink network, but mm -hmm. all of the terrestrial connectivity would happen outside of China and what jurisdictions you would route through. And that is because China is not permitting them to put uh, base stations in the Chinese mainland at this point. Now, whether China will outlaw the use of such dishes because it doesn't meet their uh, security requirements, the government, of course, has mandated certain policies around data shall pass through various points in the network uh, so that it can apply inspections and for social reasons that, that we won't go into here. It's not for us to judge. Uh, or comment. Uh, so the chance there is that, no, it won't go through any jurisdictions. Uh, what we see with the base stations going into places like Google and AWS and Azure is that that's where large volumes of data are. And so when you route out of the Starlink, you want to get straight to your data as quickly as possible. And by putting a base station in the clouds where there are substantial volumes of data and services makes sense in that sense, right? Yeah, for sure. It has to get into the internet somehow at the end of the day, right? right? Yeah, and these cloud providers also have pretty good backbones that if you want to ride across. Yeah, and so that's where the connectivity is. And then C goes on to talk about virtual conference. He says he agree that people are more the problem than the features of the software. That is the way we approach these virtual events is wrong. But he also says so many presenters have terrible microphones and webcams. How do these people have top salaries, but their companies can't provide reasonable equipment? The answer here is, uh, of course, that most of these people don't know. We have this problem fairly persistently on packet pushes where people turn up and they're standing five meters away from their laptop yelling at the screen or something. And the answer is nobody's told them they've got bad audio. Literally. How many times have we said that, Drew? <laughs> A thousand million times. I yeah. Think. And they just go like, what? Oh, nobody ever told me. So if you're listening to somebody and it sounds like you're in a public bathroom yelling between the cubicles, tell somebody. And uh, that they then they might actually do something about it. My experience is that they probably won't because they're not listening to themselves. So it's not their problem. And most people are incredibly selfish and self-centered. But you never know. And then C's last point is to do with hallway talk. He says that he thinks that age is a factor because he points out that Twitch gaming events, the audience just constantly engages in chat. It's not always very productive, but it's a chat and it's a dialogue. And older people just don't want to see him engage in these chats. And that's true. The ability to participate in 
Slack or Discord or to engage in constant chats and form new connections in those chat channels isn't something that uh, older people have been trained in. And trained is the same as use or learn or adapt to. And I agree with you entirely until people learn that they're, if you're in a virtual environment, you don't go to a virtual room to see the virtual booth, to chat to the virtual person. There are new ways, better ways of doing it. And that was the point I think I was trying to make. If you want to hear more about that discussion, uh, the Heavy Strategy podcast has been rebooted with Jonah and myself, and you should look for it in your favorite things and subscribe because Jonah Till Johnson is willing to take me on in an argument. And it's pretty yes, good is. fun. So it is. Heavy Strategy 7 will publish next week. And I think most people will enjoy the format if you're into the network break. And if you want to get into the discussion with us, uh, please drop us an FU. It's a packetpushers.net slash FU if you've got a comment, a correction, a criticism, or you just want to say hello. Mm. All right, let's get into some news. First, Palo Alto Networks announced new security products, including improved CASB capabilities, new firewalls, and a cloud identity engine. The company's tying all these announcements together under the bailiwick of zero trust, which is the new magic word in security marketing. Zero trust, of course, is a key component of the new normal, for lack of a better term. You know, as we move to post-pandemic or a, a, a sort of a society reopening as vaccinations take hold in some countries. This is recognition that distributed work, that work happens wherever it happens. And that may be in an office, in a traditional setting. It may be out of an office in your home. It may actually be on a customer's premises. It may be in a coffee shop or in a rented, you know, in a casual office environment, whatever it is. And part of it is how do we change uh, enterprise IT access and control? And CASB is going to be the hot thing. And a key part of CASB is zero trust networking, which is identity management. How do I know where the person is? How do I control their access? How do I put them in zero trust campus networks where I don't trust them and validate that they've got access to the services that they want? And Paolo was a little bit behind here. Now, you did more on this, Drew. You did the briefing. Uh, what do you think? I did get a briefing. Unfortunately, they were light on technical detail, I think, because they're saving it up for a big June announcement on a June virtual event. So uh, I only got a scratch at the surface. But Cloud Identity Engine in particular, as far as I can tell, uh, to me, it sounds like a cloud-based broker between, say, there's a bunch of you know online identity services and single sign-on services people use like Okta and Ping, uh, Azure AD. And Cloud Identity Engine is trying to insert itself between those services and your devices, whether it's like a virtual instance of a Palo firewall or a Palo agent or whatever, to do act as, I guess, sort of a third party, act as one broker for all of these other services. So Palo sort of gives you one location to control your sign on and identity controls. Hmm. So that's, I guess, what they're trying to do is get between Active Directory and Duo Security and a range of other. Yes. Uh, 2FA, right. you know, Ubico, and provide a, a unified authentication engine for all the different ones, which is not a bad idea because that means you can make money out of other people's products. Uh, if you right. want to take a cynical view, you know, <laughs> anytime you put a mid layer in, that means you get control. You prevent them from controlling what your customers are doing and making sure that you don't have to write a unified um, integration. So if you think about it from Paolo's point of view, they don't want to have to write a unified authentication capability with all the different 2FA and identity management solutions out there. So coming up with a single module and then attempting to card, charge customers for it's kind of interesting. I mean, it gives them a bite at the Apple for identity services that other people mm. have already set up by sort of inserting themselves as a shim between them. I also think 
you know, with Palo Alto promoting zero trust, we know that identity and authorization and access control are a key element. And I think Palo Alto is sort of lacking in this area, particularly when you look at, you know, Cisco with ICE and Aruba with ClearPass, they have much stronger identity capabilities and Palo Alto needs to talk about something here. So they've got now this new cloud identity engine. Hmm. Well, it also means that they can embrace their competitor products or embrace third party products and bring their own into the mix. Yes. And if a customer embraces Palo as their preferred vendor, then they've got to, they don't have to go outside the fault. So land and expand in that sense, perhaps? Yeah. I mean, frankly, it's a clever way to do it because you're just inserting yourself into a stream that's already there. So mm. uh, it's essentially what they are, what everybody who's got a SASE or cloud security service does already, and they're just adding identity to it. Mm. I'm still convinced that software-defined perimeter is the long game here. So mm -hmm. the idea that SASE and SD-WAN is useful, is viable. That is, you know, if I've got traditional branch campus style networks, I can put a network device in and get advantages and extend the security out to the branch. But I think the world's moving past that and actually moving to say, I can put a agent into the laptop, to the smartphone, to the tablet, and increasingly to IoT devices. I suspect IoT devices will come with agents pre-installed with their own SASE clients, if you like, and then uh -huh. the software-defined perimeter goes right out to the device. This idea that the network will be involved is something that's a short-term trend. Obviously, it's an evolution of where we are today, but the long-term is software-defined perimeter, but it'll take a long time to evolve there. Yeah, I feel like everything old is new again. I mean, I remember all of the kerfuffle around NAC back in the early aughts. Uh, we've also been having remote access with VPNs for ages, and this is just an additional twist on that, adding more capabilities around identity, device posture, that kind of thing. And it's not just, you know, with NAC with just the LAN, now we're talking about remote access from anywhere. So that's the new twist. Yeah, and I think this is really quite significant because that uh, obviously the distributed working trend for companies it's going to play out in various forms. Some companies are going to want to do it and some companies I don't want to do it and some managers will want to do it. Some man Everybody's experience is going to be radically different, I suspect. So this market will probably not reward an early mover in some ways because it'll change and evolve, but it, it will. I think the momentum is ultimately there to extend SD-WAN, adding security. So it's SASE. There's many forms of SASE, but there's no definition. But software-defined perimeter is part of the Cloud Security Alliance's definition of a platform, so it's more likely to evolve. And there's just so many moving pieces, whether you have a client on the endpoint or not, whether you need to do something through the browser, whether they're accessing, accessing premises applications or SaaS or IaaS applications, uh, all of these wrinkles mean that there are a variety of approaches to this. So I think we're going to be talking about it for a while. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Uh, the company also announced two new firewalls, including a high-end device that Palo Alto says can provide up to 120 gigabits per second of threat inspection with all security services turned on and can support up to 100 million simultaneous sessions. So that must be a beast. There's also a low-end device for SMBs, the PA400. Oh, I've got this picture of you know the really big person and the small person. and Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there is definitely a need for this, the 120 gigabits per second of threat inspection. There are customers out there who have that sort of, uh, you know, that choke point security model at the perimeter of uh -huh. the network, and uh -huh. the bandwidths are cranking up. You know, you you the days of the 10 gig pipe are gone, and 40 gig internet connections are now normal, and 100 gig is on its way. You would need. There are customers who would who want this and need this, uh, and until we can learn how to horizontally scale firewalls, like some companies have, like we've spoken to uh, vendors out there who can horizontally scale firewalls in virtual environments, 
but there's a lot of people who aren't ready for that. They're not willing to embrace that. And so this is that. Yep. Uh, so links in the show notes if you want to find out more. Uh, let's move. Oh, uh, there's also, you you picked this out. There was a recent, uh, from the Biden administration, uh, White House executive order. Uh, and in that executive order, they actually mentioned the word zero trust architecture as something the federal government needs to be moving. Yeah, I, I draw this out because the Palo Alto's financial results, which were, of course, uh, as you can imagine, quite strong. No reason to call it out because there was nothing standing out in the Palo Alto financial results. They made a lot of money. They're going to make a lot more money. Everybody's very excited about their financial position, so that's great. Uh, but this is they called out that uh, President Biden signed an executive order improving the nation's cybersecurity. And Section 3, where he calls out modernizing federal government cybersecurity, federal government cybersecurity, talks specifically about uh, to keep pace, we must take decisive steps to modernize its approach. The federal government must adopt security best practices, advance towards zero trust architecture, accelerate movement to secure cloud services, including software as a service and so forth. Um, it's an interesting executive order. It's quite long and tedious reading, but it seems to be quite well put together in the sense that it sort of mandates that the federal government will take steps. It doesn't uh, have any impact on US businesses, of course, or even the states. There's no legislative power beyond reaching out to federal institutions. But it does also mean that federal money will be tilting towards security vendors to force them as the federal government tries to modify, modernize some of its infrastructure. What jumped out to me is the fact that the federal government has adopted what I consider to be an industry framing, which is zero trust architecture, which isn't a standard. Um, there are lots of ways to get there. There are lots of disagreements on how it's done. So for the government to use that language seems to me, I, I'm really not sure how to take it. I guess I understand their, the, the bigger purpose they're going for, but I'm also a little wary to see them adopting industry language. Uh, well, the, the Biden administration appointed uh, Chris Krebs to the position of cybersecurity, I want to say. Um, he was the one that was uh, dismissed from the previous administration, was the Director of Cybersecurity, Homeland Security, mm -hmm. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency. He was dismissed and now he's been returned to the Biden administration. He's highly respected for somebody who can uh, bridge the uh, political sphere and mm -hmm. quite well respected in the cybersecurity or in the security community as someone who can speak normal language. So I suspect they've got the right person in the right place for once. All right, moving on. Uh, a few years ago, Arista acquired an L1 switching company called Metamaco. They specialized in low latency switches for high-speed trading. Arista now has announced that its EOS network operating system can run on the Metamaco switch. This is called the 7130 series. Uh, essentially, by porting EOS to this switch, companies can now manage the switches with their Cloud Vision software. Uh, although Arista says it will also continue to support the original Metamaco network OS. Yeah, it has to do both uh, because customers who use the Metamarco are often trading companies, trading billions mm -hmm. or trillions of dollars a day. Uh, these switches are most often using very highly specialized networks. And the one that we know most of them about is these low latency trading networks. And effectively, this switch is a cable emulator is one way to think of it, not the way most people talk about it. They normally try to add value by calling it low latency switching, but it's really just emulating a cable. And the idea is that you've got a switch where you plug all your physical cables in, and then you can say this port connects to that port. It's not a switch in the normal definition. It's actually a cable emulator. And then as the packets go through, it can do a very small number of specific modifications to the, to the frame. 
Mm-hmm. And it can also duplicate it. So if you're attempting to capture packets for later playback or for review or for whatever purposes, which is what happens in the financial networks, you can do PPTP timestamping for precision timestamping so you can transaction follow transaction records and stuff like that. Right. Uh, Rissa says this switch can get down to sub 100 nanoseconds of latency, which is definitely what the high-frequency traders are after. Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, we're seeing the gap between these switches. These FPJ switches have been around for 20 years or more, and MetaMarco and Cisco acquired one recently as well, sort of just to make sure that you understand the space here. Uh, <laughs> and they're, they're sold for really substantial sums of money because they're sold to niche applications. The unique thing I think here is that Arista put EOS on it so that customers who have EOS can either use their existing Arista switches in the rest of their campus or companies who have this switch can now be sold the Arista switches. All right. right. So it's a land and expand strategy. Uh, also, I think they wouldn't want to keep developing a legacy OS. They would believe that their EOS internally is the one true path. Uh, they have a, a religious, religious sort of conviction around their EOS. But even so, I mean, most of the modern switches are sort of around 400 nanoseconds. So getting sub 100 nanoseconds doesn't really move the needle. So it's interesting that the gap of forwarding performance is now a lot smaller. But Maybe it's about consistent. One of the the features of these FPGAs is they can give you consistent forwarding predictable so that every port gets exactly the same performance. Whereas in the the low latency switching of normal ASICs, you get unpredictable. You can't guarantee that everybody on the switch will get the same forwarding performance because the way the buffering algorithms might work, like the virtual output queuing in the ASIC engines might give one person, you know, almost uh, 10 milliseconds, but another person might get 400 nanoseconds. And in low latency trading, that would be perceived as an unfair advantage. Right. You have to have consistent performance. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, you know, they're, again, unique applications for unique purposes. Uh, one more note, uh, as you mentioned, these switches do include FPGAs, uh, so they are programmable. And Arista announced a new app uh, that can run on these switches. It's called Switch App. Uh, lets you change the profile of the switch by just reprogramming the FPGAs on the device. If you want capabilities like you mentioned, timestamping, packet filtering, some kind of traffic examination, Switch App will make it easier for you to do that. Although you will also see changes in latency. Mm, yeah, I mean, these FPGA switches can do five nanosecond layer one switching if that's what you want. But if you're just doing more traditional Ethernet switching, sometimes what vendors do is they take the traditional ASICs, such you know your Broadcoms and so forth, and they do have low latency modes, but they're not normally invoked because they come with restrictions. You can't run a right. whole bunch of things. I think in this case, Arista may be leaning into both sides of this equation. You can choose the FPGA for the very, very, like a few nanoseconds of forwarding latency, but you lose right. a whole bunch of features. But they've also got a set of switches here which do sub 100 nanosecond latency but they're, and they're more traditional switches. So I think it's a little confusing. I'll probably have to spend more time digging into the product to know which is which. I think the take is if you're into high frequency trading, this should uh, uh, pique your interest. Otherwise, <laughs> probably yeah. don't worry about it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it piques your interest, right. in which case do worry about it, by all means. But sure. Yeah. yeah. All right, moving on. Uh, Frontier Communications misrepresented the speed of its internet DSL service to some consumers and charged them for speeds it couldn't provide. That's according to a lawsuit filed by the U.S. Federal Trade Commission and six U.S. states. The lawsuit alleges that on some tiers of Frontier's DSL service, it promised customers download speeds that the service wasn't technically capable of providing and, quote, provisioned consumers for slower speeds than the tiers of the DSL internet service to which they are subscribed. So the lawsuit is asking the court 
for restitution for consumers and other relief, but potentially civil penalties and others. I'm not sure how to approach this. This is such a, a, a local issue to just parts of the US where a particular provider wants to be. But I think the tack that I would take, Drew, is not so much that it's just a local issue for US people, is that um, in the US, there's the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and then the yes. Federal Communications Commission. And in yes. theory, the Federal Communications Commission regulates the industry and should have uh, been oversight of frontier communications to ensure that they didn't breach laws and regulations. And the FTC regulates business practices. And so what you've got is this interesting situation that seems to happen in US politics quite a bit, which is you're catching the criminals for tax evasion, but not for the crime. Mm, I guess I disagree because I guess that the FCC didn't catch them, yes, but the FTC is the one that's, uh, I guess it's where consumers can get relief as opposed to the FCC. That's yeah, and the, the FCC difference. should never, this should never have happened, right? The, the crime, right. the criminal should never have. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like the, the mafia boss who eventually got put in jail for tax evasion, but not for the crimes that he committed right. in the 1930s, right? right? And yep. that's what this feels like. Like the the US legal system is set up so that the FCC oversights and it chose not to oversight and just to let them get away to do whatever they like. And now another part of the government has stepped in and used the the tax code effectively or the consumer protections to to take this on. And it's I signal more to me it's a failure of shows the failure of the US government in terms of handling its ISPs and a lesson on how not to regulate your telcos. Yeah, uh, to me, it's it's about the FTC recognizing that these are unfair business practices and that's their bailiwick. So they jumped in and I'm glad they did. Uh, also, the six U.S. states, uh, for its part, uh, uh, Frontier says the suit is without merit and they're going to defend itself in court, which is, is their right. Mm -hmm. um, I think last week we talked about uh, several uh, unnamed broadband providers in the U.S. astroturfing. Uh, FCC comments, so it's more evidence of uh, ISPs yeah. behaving badly. But it's the FCC with the power here, and so. Yep. But you know, as people who live in other countries will tell you, various regulatory environments are all different. And normally, what you have is like, for example, in uh, Britain, where I live, where I know much more, this would simply not happen. These people would not be permitted to be dishonest. And it wouldn't happen because they're being sued for poor business practices. They would be breaching the communications law. And uh -huh. that's what you, I think you should be looking at here is this is a failure of the FTC, not a, not anything else. Failure of the FCC. Not mm. the FTC. Sorry, yes, the failure of the FCC. All right. Uh, we've got links in the show notes, uh, both to the FTC's news uh, release and a story in the register if you want to find out more. Right, a quick break from the news to tell you about our sponsor today, Dell Technologies. They're helping enterprise customers pave the way for transforming their networks with innovative open networking offerings and global support and services. A key component of this journey are commercial versions of open source Sonic, both within the data center and further. Sonic is based on Linux and a containerized architecture that can help organizations build out data centers for a hyperscale growth, along with the flexibility of implementing only the functions they need. As demand increases for supporting network functions closer to workloads at the edge and in the cloud, the logical step is advancing network capabilities in smart NICs, or more recently called data processing units or DPUs. The modularity of Sonic and the use of the open programming language P4 makes it ideal as an intelligent and flexible OS for DPUs. Much like in the data center, Sonic can help DPUs at the edge or cloud maximize performance, enable fine-grained network programmability, and benefit from a robust open source community. You can find out more at dellTechnologies.com networking. That's dellTechnologies.com networking. Now back to the news. 
Cisco reported Q3 2021 financial results for the quarter. It had revenues of $12.8 billion, up 7%, and was just shy of $3 billion in net income. Uh, some highlights from the report, Cisco is well on pace with its push towards subscription-based licensing. 81% of its software is now sold as a subscription. So lots of interesting things in the Cisco results. Uh, they had a good quarter. They announced more money, more profits, more revenue, and good results. Uh, particularly, they had uh, massive increases in sales to the tier to the cloud providers. So somewhere along the line, they've manufactured a product where they've been selling to the cloud scale companies. Somebody's been buying mm -hmm. something from Cisco. They don't say what in the uh, financial results, but they highlight it and say we're making more money from cloud scale providers than we have before. So maybe Cisco Silicon One got a leg in somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's appealing to a particular customer group and they're buying up some of it. But uh Chuck Robbins was at pains to highlight to analysts that he's seeing businesses increasing as the pandemic transitions into the next phase, and he believes that businesses are planning to increase their IT spending as they modernize their infrastructure to cope with the new environment. Um, he particularly highlights, or he believes, that businesses are now taking steps to proof themselves using technology against future waves of pandemic problems. So instead of reacting like we saw 18 months ago and people rushing out fixes, patches, or making do, he thinks there'll mm -hmm. be a wave of spending of people doing structural overhauls of the system. Uh, on the pricing front, they made a big... It was a really interesting quote from Robbins, though. Um, Cisco's going to get more expensive. Uh, mm -hmm. Chuck Robbins said, I think we've made some decisions on certain products that we'll be making pricing increases on, and we'll be looking surgically at the rest of the portfolio based on where we have costs that we believe are going to be sustained. So what they're indirectly saying there is that the supply chain costs are going up, demand for these products is up, the people who make products can charge more, and those costs will flip through. And that was backed up when Scott Heron, who's the chief financial officer, he said, yes, it will. Uh, it is driven by the supply chain, and it comes in in a couple of flavors. Having done the work that we've done to protect shipment to our customers, there are unit prices increases, unit cost increases on certain components that are built into it. There's also increased expedite fees, again, to ensure that we get the components in and we can get the product back out the door and a slight increase in freight. So it is all really tied to the supply chain. So this is suggesting that Cisco's will have further price increases in addition to what they've already put in over the last 30 years, uh, but they're going to pin the blame on the supply chain, which is not unreasonable. And the assertion that they are also going to invest in their supply chain in terms of expedite fees, that means pay their freight companies and their freight forward is more money for priority shipments through the system, uh -huh. which would be okay, except everybody else is going to be paying their freight forwarders to get so I, I sense a scale problem. Yeah, here. I sense a yeah. Um, we do know that for a lot of IT products, they're already on a six month to one year lead time. So I believe that a lot of Wi-Fi six chipsets are on one year lead times, and I've seen reports on Cisco products being six months to one year for new orders already. So there is a a, a chance for vendors to start charging more if they think they can get away with it, but for customers, I think the cloud will become more attractive potentially. So public clouds will be able to control their supply chains better even than Cisco or any of the IT vendors. And I suspect that enterprises will move into that platform because they won't have to worry about will it be delivered in three months, six months, nine months. It's just there. I wonder if with Cisco's move to subscriptions, part of the strategy is that these 
cost increases maybe get a little bit more diluted because the customer isn't paying that capex up front. It's kind of uh, uh, amortized over time that it's a little easier for them to raise prices without a lot of pushback from customers. I've already highlighted that Cisco pricing has effectively increased with the subscription pricing. Cisco charges roughly the same money for the switch and the software that goes on it. And then the subscription licensing is an additional price that's stacked on top. And then on top of that is the software defined components that they sell. These are not built. Your campus network is not the same price as it was five years ago. It's by my rough rule of thumbs, it's about three 300% higher than it was. I don't think they can take it any higher or they'll start to lose market share or competitors will be able to creep in and they would lose too much at once. And this is just saying, I think this is more kowtowing to analysts who are saying, well, supply chain is constrained. You can charge more. You should charge more. So they will. <laughs> and then blame <laughs> Why it on. not? Yeah. And then blame it on and their blame supplies. Blame it on supply chain. If you want sure. it to be most cynical, that's what you could be. I do believe that if I was manufacturing, you know, if I'm TSMC and I'm fabbing your chips, I can certainly get you. Why wouldn't you? Right. Mm. Uh, yeah. Costs are coming down the line for everybody. Mm. All right, link in the show notes if you want to see the report for yourself. Palo Alto Networks also announced Q3 2021 financial results. Third quarter revenues were $1.1 billion, up 24% year over year. That's an admirable number, but the company is bleeding money. It posted a net loss of $145 million, almost double its net loss this time last year of around $74 million. Yeah, sales and marketing at $448 million, so that's way down. It used to be much, much higher, so they're bringing their costs under control. Uh, but I still think that the cost of selling this product is way outsized. But the flip side is Palo Alto has made a number of acquisitions over the last 12 months, uh, yep. you know, buying SD-WAN products, threat detection, threat scanning, threat intelligence, you know, so much stuff. Not entirely unsurprising and investors do not seem to be worried. What they are looking for is growth. Even if you're making a loss, as long as the growth is sufficient and balanced, then that's fine. So Cisco, even though it announced growth, and increase in profits, its forward projections were lower and the share price fell 5%. Uh, Palo Alto, on the other hand, popped up quite for shareholders was quite nice. I think customers can expect Palo Alto to continue to spend more, uh, make a more complete portfolio and probably charge more too at the same time. Why not? Everybody else will. Hmm. All right. And we'll wrap up with news from uh, Microsoft. They have announced that Internet Explorer 11 desktop browser is going to go out of support in June 2022 on certain versions of Windows 10. Microsoft wants everyone to transition to the Edge browser going forward. Thank goodness for that, shall we say. Uh, this is more just to flag it to you if you haven't heard about it already, although I suspect you would have. IE 11 is dead. You've got less than you've got just a year to get rid of it uh, and move over to the Edge browser in your desktops get moving. So keep in mind that it was previously, it's announced now, uh, Microsoft internal apps will cease support for Internet Explorer 11 on August the 17th. That's three months away, right? That is, they will no longer test IE 11 against their own applications for Microsoft Office 365 and all those types of things. And the absolute end of life is June next year. Yeah, although Microsoft does note that the Edge browser has an Internet Explorer mode built into the browser because there are so many older web applications out there that would break without uh, having <laughs> that backwards compatibility. Mm. Uh, I, in the release that Microsoft put out, it said that it found on average enterprises have 
1,678 legacy apps that still need IE uh, Internet Explorer to function. So, wow. <laughs> that is a huge number. Uh, I'll bet they're regretting IE now that they've got to drag this along. Like they have to develop, <laughs> devote an entire team to yes. supporting this legacy. I bet they're sort of wishing that they hadn't done that now that they had have stayed with a modern open browser and just, sure, just use Chrome. Why aren't we just, why did we have to do, but they do, you know, but Microsoft's commitment to backward compatibility um, is one of their key features. They don't normally roast customers in the fire of get it done, people, uh, but it needs to be done. IE Explorer is just the whole infrastructure inside of IE is just broken and moving to edge is probably the only way out. Probably, but if I had a thousand apps that I had to upgrade, that's a lot to do. Honestly, uh, if you've got a thousand apps, you've got a bigger problem, not just the web browser. No, <laughs> you that's know, true. You know, Very true. If those apps aren't maintained or being looked after, you've got a security problem. And if it still needs, it's probably running IIS2 or something, you know, like. Crazy. All right, well, that wraps up the news portion of the show. Stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia on its fabric services system and data center automation that's starting right now. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Packet Pushers. On today's episode, we're continuing our sponsored conversation with Nokia about its SR Linux network OS and its fabric services system for automating and operating a data center fabric. And today we're going to drill more into fabric services system features, including a digital sandbox for emulation. Let's welcome back Funny Kakanti. He is Senior Director of Product Management at Nokia, and he's going to give us all the details on fabric services system. Uh, Funny, welcome back to the show. So Fabric Service System in your documentation, you talk about day zero, day one, day two operations. Can you give examples of, of how your Fabric approach addresses each of those? Sure. We take an abstract intent-based approach and we try to take care of all stages of the life of a fabric all the way from day zero design. And the day zero design, we also try to complement it with a unique capability that we call as digital sandbox that will allow you to uh, create a digital twin of your real network and uh, experiment whatever you're doing, whether you're in the design phase, you're trying out various topologies or whether you want to uh, play out a specific config change and understand the overall ripple effects to the network and then only uh, play it out on the real network. So it's a unique tool that we are building within tightly integrated within mm. our portfolio. That sandbox is really interesting to me, that idea that when I want to make a change, I can actually run it in a sandbox, test it, uh, see how it's going to look, and then actually push it to the live network. Works well with the existing processes of many customers who have a how do we validate a change before we make it, and how do we test it, how do we, and promotes a, and I think there's also a virtuous cycle about promoting the idea of. I'm going to walk through the configuration and then I'm going to validate and then I'm going to implement. And that's uh, something we haven't seen a lot around enterprise IT. That's correct, Greg. Think of it like you want to go with Nokia or you don't want to go with Nokia. You're still evaluating. You can download our software and you can play around. And whatever you do on the sandbox is going to be exactly the same thing that's going to happen on the real network. Now, hmm. how, how am I able to say that confidently? It's the same code that runs on the switch, bit by bit, exact code. We have taken hmm. it, containerized it, and we use cloud native or to be specific Kubernetes, Kubernetes native approaches hmm. to b take a number of those containerized SR Linux boxes and uh, build a virtual fabric out of it. And so if you, when you are validating your design or when you're validating your configuration, 
I'm not going to say 100%, but uh, I can confidently tell you 70 to 80% of the uh, issues, you can find it on our sandbox before even you exercise them on the real network. So it, it, it mitigates your risk, actually make more frequent changes, you know. Typically, most of the operators, once they have stabilized their network, they are very, very scared to make any changes. Uh, and a typical good example, Greg, is upgrade, you know. Let's say mm-hmm. I'm a vendor, I gave you a new software image for the switch. I mean, every customer gets scared. How will that new software coexist with my older version? And uh, what kind of, will it work? Will it have any surprises? And we will enable you to try that out on the sandbox. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to come back to is you just hinted at something that I don't think we touched on in the previous episode, which was that the code that runs in your sandbox is actually the code that's on the switch. So this is goes back to our original podcast on your SR Linux, which is the operating system on the switches, it is a ground up rewrite. It's all Linux. It's all modern software architectures. It's Kubernetes inside the switch to some lesser or greater extent. And so that means that the containers that run the you know, the routing code, the switching code is all the same as you can run it in a sandbox. It's not an emulation. It's not a simulation. It's not a almost or close. Or it's not like some sort of abstracted model. It's the same code. That's correct, Greg. And we made sure we don't need tight dependencies on the kernel. We do depend on kernel, but we are kind of kernel agnostic. As a result, all the major operating system code is actually everything is user space. As a result, we were able to very cleanly containerize it and with a very small footprint, use that containerized SR Linux as a component within our sandbox. So can you talk a little bit about how you're able to build the sandbox? Is it essentially tied to my current configuration of the fabric? No, absolutely. You know, so if when you look at the overall workflow, the way you create fabrics using our abstract intent-based approach, the exact same workflow applies to the sandbox as well. We are strictly trying to follow our approach of digital twin, meaning we don't want to treat the real fabric and the sandbox fabric differently. The how you design, how you deploy, how you modify a fabric, we we will be enforcing the exact same procedure via our fabric services system, whether it's a real fabric or a sandbox fabric. So the tools that you use or the flow that you use will be consistent. Okay. So I guess the thrust of my question was if I'm, I don't want to have to spend as much time sort of updating and monitoring the uh, emulation element as I do the real network. So you're saying all that happens automatically for me on the emulation side. That's correct. So you've mentioned a couple of use cases. Um, Once I have this uh, sandbox and I want to do things like test a change, make sure I've got reachability, make sure I'm not opening up holes. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, and uh, you can even emulate failures. That way, uh, in the real network, you might be doing fine, but you know what are the common failures that are going to happen. And you want to test your configuration, your design for failures as well. That's going to be important. And uh, during initial design stages, you might want to even exercise some interop also. Uh, So we have a feature within our sandbox that will allow you to physically connect to any kind of equipment, whether it's like a VMware hypervisor or a a third-party vendor's router or a firewall, whichever is the device, you'll be able to physically connect, validate. And more importantly, as I'm explaining, you can test out various failure scenarios as well. Okay, so it's not just limited to the SR Linux. I can also check out 
configurations on, you know, a firewall or some other networking device that's not Nokia's? That's correct. I mean, we will not support emulating of a third party device like a firewall or anything, but we'll allow you to connect any device, whether it's a firewall or whatever is that equipment into the sandbox and you will be able to test it out as if that device is communicating with a real SR Linux box. Okay, that's good. So that actually <laughs> provides even more value for this because so much of the data center is complex and I can, I guess I get more confidence in, in what I'm doing when I'm making changes. Yeah, because you know, if you take the approach of, let me try to emulate every possible vendor product, you know, I mean, it's not only impossible, but trying to accurately em emulate uh, it, it is not the right strategy. Rather, keep an open interface so that you can connect any type of device and do do your uh, testing or do your validations. So you mentioned intent uh, earlier in the conversation, and that's become kind of a loaded word around data center automation and operations. How does Nokia see intent and, and how do you actually enable it? How am I, as a network operator, able to express my intent? The intent, as the name specifies, you know, we take an abstract approach. We call it as an abstract intent. And we only take the minimal attributes that are needed from the operator and which maps to the real functional items like uh, how many computes per rack are you trying to address by building this fabric? And we auto build the relevant topology and various configurations are also auto built. So that's what we call it as an intent-based approach. But in the previous session also, I covered it. When you go to a technical level, it's all about you have a desired state as an operator and you go through a number of automations and you deploy it and you continuously monitor the network, which is the current state. And we are in a very tight, closed loop, continuously monitoring the current state and apply and making sure the current state is uh, same as the desired state. And if the system detects a drift from the desired state, what happens? When you detect a change and this happens asynchronously, almost instantaneously, when we detect a change, we call that as an intent deviation. We pop it up as an alert to the customer and we give a flexible option to the customer he can accept that deviation. Sometimes the deviation in the config was for a good reason and it is a useful thing. The operator has logged into the box and did a small change and you want to incorporate that change. You know, So you could accept that change. As a result, that new piece of config will get integrated into your golden config. Or if you think it was a mistake or it was a temporary change you had made, you reject it and the fabric services system is going to bring the whole network back to what was the previously configured um, state uh, of the config. Okay. I'm curious how, or if you've seen examples of customers integrating this emulation or digital twin into their operations. And I'm thinking about sort of the old ways of doing things where there'd be a meeting and you'd have maybe a CMDB and lots of people sitting around a table trying to figure out the implications of the change. How does having a digital twin impact day-to-day -day operations? Just analyzing the config is not going to cut the deal for these modern data centers. You got to do a good job of treating your emulation platform as if it is a real network, meaning it needs to have enough functionalities that you can exercise and you are able to bring out all the issues. In, in our case, we are not only going to emulate the control plane, but also the data plane. Obviously you can test performance, mm -hmm. 
the packets per second are surely going to be limited because they are running on a compute but you will be able to exercise every control and data plane scenario. Let's say you have an ACL installed that matches on a prefix and tries to drop that traffic. You will see those packets getting dropped on the sandbox as well. So all the combinations of your forwarding and your policies like permit denies or any other policies like you want to do mirroring or uh, send a few uh, S-flow samples, all those scenarios will be exercised on your sandbox as well. The only difference is, yes, it's not the real data plane. As a result, the performance aspects and the timing scenarios will be different, but the yeah. coexistence of every feature will be tested. So the testing coverage isn't 100%, but it can't be inherently short of, this is this joke about it has to be done in live uh, to, to simulate. That's what, that's what everybody talks about in that scenario, but it's, it's certainly a lot of the way there. One of the things I wanted to ask is, would it be possible to use as a sandbox for API development? So if I wanted to be able to write code to do some, to leverage the fabric services architecture, to test whether I could write a script or an Ansible or to integrate it with something else, is the sandbox useful for that as well? Absolutely, Greg, in the newer DevOps and NetOps kind of an ecosystem, we can't expect every customer to build a physical network for their development efforts. And we absolutely position our sandbox as a virtual lab that can be used for extending our SR Linux. We mm -hmm. talked about how extendable SR Linux is. You can develop some NDK apps and all that. So all those apps can be developed and exercised on the sandbox. And let's say you deployed like 20 or 30 sandbox mm -hmm. nodes and you build a fabric out of it and you want to mm -hmm. operate them as fabric and you want to program via northbound APIs of our FSS, absolutely, you know. So no, all kinds of development can be done against mm -hmm. these uh, sandbox environments. Which, and that's unique, I think, because most of the other vendors say you have to deploy a second instance and you have to allocate servers and deploy code onto them or, you know, there's no, they only have one version in the cloud. It's not like I can just use their test cloud instance to de develop my, I have to work on a genuine API. That's a, that's a differentiator that strikes me that stands out a little. And, and Greg, to add to that, we want this to be so, so easily consumable. We can enable a very small footprint implementation that we plan to call it as DS Lite, meaning digital mm. sandbox light. Or, you know, uh, you, you can always have it on-prem deployment on your own computes, but we'll also provide an easy way where it's just hosted on the cloud and uh, you you get charged, but you don't go through the pain of organizing all your computes and going through the installation and all that. We do plan to offer it as a service so that you can actually, you have the easy way of getting the whole experience. Is the Sandbox a separate product or does it essentially come bundled with Fabric Services System? It is bundled, but it is also unique enough that some customers might consider it as a standalone, meaning Hey, look, I don't need all your automations. I I do plan to do a few automations on my own, but I like your emulation capabilities, you know? So we, we are flexible. We have designed it such a way that both deployment models are possible, but our preferred model is it comes together with the fabric services. So all the easy buttons, all the easy way to provision things are also inherited. 
Okay. Is it licensed separately or is it included with my fabric services system license? No, it is a separate licensable component, but we recognize the importance of it. So we want to give a small scale teaser license free of cost mm -hmm. that goes along with the fabric services and only for some advanced scale and other capabilities, there'll be a licensable component. Got it. So I can try it, get a sense of it and decide if I want to license the full, the full capabilities. Correct. Correct. Okay, so we, we've got the, the sandbox element if I want to test things, but I've also got my production network. Do I also, are you providing any kind of telemetry or monitoring so I can still actually have a real-time picture of, of what's going on in my production side? Absolutely. You know, just trying to create a digital twin, yes, it has its benefits, but on the real network, you absolutely have to monitor every possible metric at a very granular level. And as I was indicating, you can't just throw that raw telemetry data to the user. You have to correlate, analyze, and try to build what we call as an insight uh, database. So we try to project the contextual uh, information or the contextual insight. Let's say there is some uh, network problem happening, and we would try to figure out what is the potential root cause. And if it is by chance related to any combination of configurations that was done. So we don't just operate on the current operational state only, but we do try to combine that with the intent and the config that was pushed to the network. And we, uh, we do a more complicated analysis and try to make the life of the user uh, simple and so that he can get the clear indication of the potential root causes. There's a couple of things about telemetry. There's two angles. One is not only the software that collects the telemetry, but actually the quality of the operating system, the ability of the operating system to generate telemetry data is a key concern. And there are a number of network operating systems out there that are still in production and people are still buying that really cannot stream gigabytes of telemetry data off without killing the CPU or running out of memory or the code isn't stable to be able to do that. So it does mean that you actually have to die uh, to do this from the ground up. That's correct, Greg. And you'll, you'll find it very important to balance between how much telemetry is generated asynchronously as a on-change event versus mm -hmm. how much you pull from the central collector. What, what I mean by that is, if you just allow all the switches to bombard the central collector, however good the implementation is, it's just mm -hmm. not going to scale, you know? So the good design you will find with any vendor is going to be a good balance between how much information you're collecting in a asynchronous way and how much you're retrieving it on demand based on the current situation or the current need. Hmm. Well, thank you, Fani. Uh, this was a really interesting discussion. If you want to find out more about Nokia Fabric Services and SR Linux, they are, there are show notes uh, in this episode. You can go find them there. You also may want to take a listen to the April 26th Tech Byte episode. Uh, that was sort of part one of this series where we got into more details about SR Linux. Uh, in the meantime, thank you, Fani. And thank you, Nokia, for being a sponsor. Sponsors enable us to create this and many more fine free technical podcasts at packetpushers.net. We also have a community blog there. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn. And if you wouldn't mind, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. That really helps. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.